Hello and welcome to episode 95 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. So we're going to start with a, a few announcements, let you know about things going on in the Closure community, the ones we're aware of anyway. Um, so I'll start with mentioning Closure Bridge. There's one going on in London. That's February 19th and 20th. This is, of course, in 2016. Uh, you can find out more about that event at closurebridge.org. Remind you, as always, there is also a place, uh, a way for you to donate on the Closure Bridge website. You've heard us talk about Closure Bridge before. Definitely encourage you to go by, look for the London event, February 19th and 20th, and donate. A um, few conferences to mention. There is Closure Remote coming up pretty soon. That's happening February 11th and 12th. This is a completely remote conference. It will take place over the internet, so you can enjoy it from the comfort of your living room or office or whatever you've got going on there, comfortable place, and uh, uh, check it out at closureremote.com. That's put on by our good friend Ryan Newfeld, so it's in good hands. Um, looks to be a very interesting uh, idea, and I think uh, you'll enjoy it, so check it out. I uh, also want to mention uh, Closured, Closure D. not sure how you pronounce that, uh, but it's Closure, C-L-O-J-U-R-E-D, the letter D. Uh, which is a conference that's taking place in Berlin, February 20th, 2016. Uh, you can find out more about that at www.closured.de. So C-L-O-J-U-R-E-D.de. I uh, just want to mention that conference is in English. Uh, so uh, even though it's being held in Berlin, the conference will be held in English. So another good one to check out on the continent. Um, of course, Closure West is coming up. Uh, you can find out more about that at closurewest.org. Uh, significant to note that the call for proposals will be ending January 29th. So we'd love to hear your proposal for a talk for Closure West. I think it's a great conference for people to speak at if they haven't spoken at a Closure conference before. Uh, Closure West is a good venue for that. Um, and again, you can find more info about that at ClosureWest.org. also want to be sure to mention that Closure West will be offering opportunity grants uh, the link for that should be live uh, shortly, probably by the time you hear this. So Opportunity Grants is a program that uh, Closure West uses to uh, help people attend who would not otherwise be able to attend, typically from underrepresented groups. There'll be more information about that on the Opportunity Grants page, again, available shortly. Um, certainly looking for participants for that program. Would love to have you there, and hopefully uh, for some people this will uh, permit you to go. Uh, but also we're looking for sponsors, so please, everybody check that out, and there's lots of ways for you to participate in the Opportunity Grant program. Uh, finally, I want to mention, uh, you may already be aware, but it's very exciting news, that there is a brand new Closure.org website. Uh, brand new in the sense that it has a new look and a few new sections. Of course, all the content that was there before is still there. Um, you know, all the reference documentation enriches extremely uh, well-written explanations of how things work and all that good stuff. A uh, few notable sections. There's now a news section, uh, which, you know, it's going to be some posts there about, like, releases and other things and notes. Other things to note, rather. Um, there's an events page uh, where you'll be able to find out information about upcoming closure events. Um, and there's a guides section, um, which is intended to help uh, build out community guides and tutorials and things like that. So that's all very exciting. Um, especially exciting, I think, is the fact that all of Closure.org is stored in a repo, which is open for pull requests once you sign a contributor agreement. So this is something that the community uh, is going to be able to pitch in and help make better. So definitely go by Closure.org, check out the new look, and uh, see how you can get involved and make it better. So uh, 
I think we will leave it there. That's quite a lot of good news for one day. Uh, so we'll go ahead and go on to episode 95 of the Cognicast. go if you are yeah let's do it awesome yeah let's do it all right uh welcome everybody today is monday december 14th and this is the cognicast uh today we have as our guest a person i spent some time talking with at strange loop and i was like oh you've been on a list for a while would love to have you on um do you think it would work out and he said yes and here he is i'm referring to our guest today nathan mars welcome to the show Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure. I really did genuinely enjoy talking to you at uh, at Strange Loop. It was the first time we'd really had a chance to uh, sit down and, and chat. Um, so we're looking forward to doing more of that today. But before we get into it, we have our opening question that we always run with, which is to ask our guests to relate some experience of art, whatever that means to them. You know, a movie that you like or a book that you read or, I don't know, a, a cloud you saw the other day that looked like your favorite food. I don't know, something like that. But uh, maybe you have something in mind you'd like to share with us. Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, a big, uh, I guess, uh, with respect to art, a big thing in my life has always been playing the piano. Uh, I've been playing since I was about seven years old. Um, but I don't think it was really like a really important thing in my life until high school when I had this really amazing teacher uh, who was this woman from Russia. And the level of passion she had for piano and teaching piano uh, has really stuck with me my entire life. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's just something that I really enjoy. I, it's a good way to, you know, when you're doing programming, you can get, your brain can just get so into a problem and sometimes it's good to step away and sitting down for a bit and playing the piano is a really good way to get your brain focused on something else and, and to relax. So now, do you perform at all? I mean, uh, like publicly or, or just something you do for your own enjoyment or how do you do that? Yeah, it's just something for my own enjoyment. Uh, I mean, I play for friends sometimes and I do a little bit of composition. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm not that good at composing. It's just a fun thing to do um, every now and then. Very cool. Uh, that's interesting. And we may have to dive into that a little bit later. We could talk about the the links in creativity between performance and stuff like that. But there's a couple of the things that I think maybe it would make more sense for us to talk about first. So I think people probably know you as a fairly prominent closurist. You've done some interesting, really interesting work. Um, and I'm trying to think whether we would start with stuff you've done before or stuff that you've done more recently. Uh, I'm referring, of course, the, the two things that I know you best for are uh, Storm and uh, more recently, Spectre. Mm -hmm. um, you have a, a preference? Where, where should we go chronologically or reverse chronologically? Uh, let's we can just start with Storm. Okay, yeah. So yeah. Um, Storm is a, a really interesting technology that has seen wide adoption, um, and I, I think it's been around for a while, but maybe not everybody knows about it. So I wonder if you wanted to give us sort of the pre-se, uh, maybe a little history or whatever you think it's important or would be interesting for our listeners to hear. Sure. Uh, so Storm. It's a project that I started when I was working on the startup called Backtype, and it is a distributed and scalable and fault-tolerant stream processing system. Uh, so it's all about just processing 
massive streams of data at very, very high throughputs with very, very low latency. Storm uh, kind of initiated this modern wave of, uh, or this, this, this new wave of uh, stream processing. Uh, kind of before Storm, like in the big data world, it was all about batch processing, and then you had all these scalable big data databases. There was not really a good, there was, there was really nothing there, um, at least in the open source world, for doing scalable and fault-tolerant stream processing. And Storm uh, kicked, kind of kicked that movement off. So I wonder if you could uh, explain to me stream processing. Uh, I think that's a key term in the problem that space that Storm is trying to address. Yeah, so stream processing, I guess to, to summarize it most generally, it's just about processing very large amounts of data uh, with low latency. Uh, so the most basic thing you would do with stream processing is you would look at these events that are coming in. Um, so let me give like a concrete example. Uh, so at Backtype, we were doing um, real-time social media analytics. So we might be consuming a stream of tweets, and then we'll consume it, and we will update our databases with aggregated stats like how many retweets does, has this URL gotten over time and, and a variety of analytics like that. Uh, and the key to stream processing is, first of all, you need to have something that scales. So as your stream gets bigger and the state you're storing gets bigger, you can just add, add nodes to scale it. Uh, and the second big thing is fault tolerance. So you're doing distributed processing and things fail in distributed processing. You might have a node go down or any number of errors can happen. And you want to make sure that regardless of the error, you're always able to recover and, and have very strong guarantees on your data being processed. Now, in stream processing, there's, there's a variety of ways to do stream processing. Um, one of them is, is this, this idea of one-at-a-time stream processing, where you just process events as they come in, kind of independently, so not really connected to the other events you're, you're getting. And uh, with that form of processing, the best guarantee you can have is at least once processing. So you're guaranteed to process each event at least once, but in the case of failures, they may be processed more than once. Um, there's another form of stream processing called micro-batch stream processing, uh, where you basically divide your incoming stream into a series of batches, and you process each batch, and you don't move on to the next batch until the current batch has been successfully processed completely. Um, and it turns out that with micro-batch processing, you can actually achieve exactly once processing semantics. Um, so these are basically like these are the, 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 the main concepts involved uh, when, uh, when doing stream processing. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I've actually, it's, it's interesting you say that because I've, I've heard people contrast stream processing with batch processing, but given this idea of micro batches, I, I wonder maybe I'm not confused whether there's a dichotomy there at all. Is it the case that those two things are somehow in opposition, or could you maybe define them for us and help us understand? Is uh, batch processing and micro batch processing? Uh, well, actually, I was referring to batch processing and stream processing. So uh, yeah. are those two completely different things? Or are they somehow related? What's the, what's the Venn diagram look like, I guess? Um, well, I would definitely say that I, I think probably, probably the best way to categorize is um, uh, what I call, well, let's just say one at a time stream processing. That's one category. Another category is micro-batch stream processing. And we'll say the third category is big batch processing. Like the key, huge, fundamental difference between any sort of stream processing and big batch processing is is your latency constraints. Um, with big batch processing, um, you're processing so much data. There's no expectation 
that you uh, of having a hard latency constraint where oh this 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 needs to finish fast like within a hundred milliseconds um, or within a few seconds. Typically, bat, big batch processing you know if it, it, it's, it's, it takes a few hours and that's totally reasonable. Um, so that actually changes the way in which the system can be architected. Um, so big batch processing, it's actually like a, a batch a batch processor can be much simpler because it can just rely on doing. If there's a failure, let's just redo all that work and just recompute from scratch. Um, whereas with stream processing, you have tight latency constraints, uh, so you can't you can't just recompute everything from scratch from everything you've ever seen. As I know that's like I, it, it's hard to like get into you know like the nitty gritty details just on a podcast, um, but that uh, greatly affects the design um, and operation of these systems. Oh, no, that may, totally, totally makes sense to me, actually. I, I, and I yeah. uh, completely understand how that would drive things. As you say, it, you just have more options open when you can say, oh, no, that work I just did for three hours, I can just do that again, right? That's right. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, so obviously w- one of the interesting things to at least our audience uh, about Storm, uh, aside from its capabilities, is that it's written in Clojure. Um, mm-hmm. One of the really interesting things to me about Storm is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong because I haven't actually used Storm on anything production, and so I haven't spent a lot of time reading the docs. But from what I, when I've looked at it, I thought one of the really interesting choices you made, and and I think a really good choice you made was actually to kind of downplay the fact that it's written in Closure a bit. To the, the way I see it positioned, it's, it's really more of a JVM position thing than it is a closure position thing, which of course opens it up to a wider audience, even though, right, like you obviously leveraged closure when you built it, you mm-hmm. did it in such a way that uh, Java programmers rather can still take advantage of it. And again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like you made an intentional choice to position it that way in the docs and in the way that you talk about it. Am I way off base or is that something that you just, that you decided to do? You, you pretty much have it. Uh, I wouldn't say I ever like uh, like hid the fact that it's written in Clojure. I, w- I was always very upfront about that. I would always mention that in my presentations. Um, but it was a very, very intentional choice in the design of Storm. The way I designed it is all the interfaces of Storm are Java. They're literally written in Java. Um, but most of Storm's implementation was in Clojure, just because I you know love Clojure and I'm just much more productive in it. And I think the qualities of Clojure allow you to make more uh, robust programs. Um, but the interfaces were always in Java. So you, using Storm um, to actually use it um, and build applications on it, you're always implementing straight Java interfaces. Um, so user of Storm, the fact that it's written in Clojure is completely irrelevant to you because that's all hidden behind the Storm interfaces. And basically very early on, um, when I designed Storm and realized like this could be such a generically useful thing and it could be a, a huge project, I knew that uh, in order to really reach my wide audience, I would have to do it that way, where the interfaces are in Java. Because if I just did Storm just completely in Clojure, then, well, obviously, that, that, um, that does, unfortunately, uh, limit your possible users a great deal. Um, and that choice turned out to be very good, and it's one of the key reasons why Storm became a very, very big international project. So do you think there was anything about the nature of Storm that made that easier to do? Because, I mean, I could imagine having um, certain interfaces that focus on, well, for, for instance, what I mean is you can have interfaces to closure libraries that are very data-centric, and there is a lot of really good reasons to 
make heavy use of the closure data types at in those interfaces. We just, mm -hmm. you know we we all know and love the closure collection classes, for instance. Mm -hmm. And you know you could imagine that being difficult to map across a boundary where Java is on the other side because you have choices about how do you interact with those things. You know, do, do I have to reinvent a bunch of interfaces or have a whole bunch of interfaces that have, you know, object <laughs> has the type of all the parameters. Right. Um, was there something about Storm that made that, do you think, any easier than might be the case for some other problem? Uh, man, it's hard to say because, I mean, essentially the question there is how would the design of Storm be different if it was completely enclosure? <laughs> right. Man, I mean, it's just like, I mean, I built Storm uh, four years ago. Sure. Uh, and just like, the decisions I've made have become so ingrained. I'm just trying to think now, like, what would I have done differently? Well, I mean, it's maybe not a question quite as much about if you had done it all in closure. More, do you think there was something about the problem that you were solving? Oh, that, I see. That made that made that decision easier. Like, I don't, I can't remember off the top of my head what the interfaces look like, but I, you know, if you right. have if you have an interface that's just like about invoking action with no arguments, so then that's really easy because. You, know, you have go and stop and pause and resume and things like that that don't necessarily take parameters versus you know something like a rich query interface where you want to express that query as data or or you know try to express like a functional metaphor with higher order functions. I feel like that would be harder to do, and I don't know where Storm falls on that, and I don't know whether um, you think there was anything about Storm's problem space that meant. I guess what I'm really after is like I, I really think that was a good decision on your part. It, it, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it clearly it it paid off for you, right? Because I mean, Backtype got um, how much was was Storm? I'm sorry, I don't know the, the history of this more. Was Storm mm -hmm. at all a part of the story around um, you the know, acquisition? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so it's so, actually funny because uh, the uh, when we went into Twitter to do our uh, technical due diligence, you know, so when a company is interested in acquiring another company, they they do due diligence, make sure like whatever, the, you are what they expect you to be. Mm -hmm. um, and right before that technical due diligence meeting, I had I blogged about Storm. Um, and, and the intention of that blog, that was, that was the first blog post ever about Storm. And it was just totally just like, a, it was not really any real detail in there. It was just a build hype of this like new product that's coming in the future. And uh, I guess I wrote the post well because it got a bunch of attention on Hacker News. And uh, when we went in for the technical due diligence, all Twitter wanted to see was a demo of Storm. <laughs> like they they didn't they didn't want to see any of like Backtype's products, which is what they were acquiring us for. They didn't need to see that stuff. They were just they were so interested in in Storm because obviously Twitter, uh, as a uh, heavily real time company dealing with lots of data, that was very relevant to sure, them. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay, so then so then the question is, I mean, that's kind of why I'm interested. You know, um, is you know I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, well, okay, I have an idea. It's a good idea. Uh, maybe I want to see a lot of adoption for whatever reason, you know, ego or – I'm sorry, I'm not trying to attribute that reason to you at all. I didn't mean it to come out that way. But mm. just for whatever reason, right, I really want to see wide adoption. And I'm, and I'm looking at the decisions you made around the way you, the way you architect the project but also the way you position it. So, well, that seems like a really, a really good idea to, if, if that's my goal. Yeah. And, and so I guess I'm coming back to the question of, you know, if I had some great idea mm. – do you think it's the case that I would be able to make the same choices, or was there something inherent in the shape of the storm problem that made it easier than the average? You know, using air quotes yeah. there uh, f f for you. Yeah, well, I mean, as long as whatever you're solving 
is just kind of a problem of its own that has nothing to do with the fact that you know it's not that it's not tied at all to the fact that you're you want to use closure for it um, and like storm like it's you know, the problem it solves is just this generic very generic data processing problem which is um, something that uh, a lot a lot of companies have to deal with um, certainly like you know my library Spectre it doesn't make sense for me to make that this you know, with Java interfaces and closure implementation, because Spectre is entirely about improving closure programming. But I think, yeah, as long as your problem is generic enough, and then I think, I think it's definitely a, a design design choice to consider. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I mean, this is tough to talk about, right? Like anything uh, kind of architecture design related, it's very easy to rapidly wind up in the it depends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. For sure. Okay, that's good though. I I really like the perspective, and it's definitely one of those things that I've always looked at and said, I think that was a really smart move um, on your part. So that's mm-hmm. cool. Uh, but you mentioned Spectre, and uh, we could definitely talk more about Storm. Uh, maybe we'll loop back to it, but. Uh, I actually have been using Spectre recently, uh, and I've I've found it quite beneficial. Um, it is I th- I'm going to put words in your mouth here. I think you've described it as a missing piece from the the closure API. Um, mm-hmm. I I I think that's a supportable statement on your part. Uh, so I'm kind of excited to talk about it. So I wonder if we could uh, go over there for a while. Fa- you know, you said four years since you wrote. Storm, I guess we're fast-forwarding, what, about three years to, to when you write Spectre. So maybe mm-hmm. we'll just start. For those who haven't seen your talks about Spectre, which I would highly encourage people to go and check out, you do a great job of explaining it and motivating it. But uh, maybe you wouldn't mind restating a little bit for us what it is and how you came to um, decide to develop it. Yeah, so um, Spectre is basically the library that I wish I had when I started using Clojure. Since I developed the ideas for Spectre and implemented it, I just, I mean, I use it every day. It's, I use it very, very heavily. And what Spectre is, is it's a library for manipulating arbitrarily complex immutable data. Um, so if you look at Clojure's built-in, uh, built-in functions for manipulating immutable data structures, you, know, you have something like, let's say, map, which takes in a function and a sequence and then gives you back a new sequence. But now, the, the problem with uh, it's not really a problem, but just the nature of Clojure's base functions is that they don't compose with more sophisticated data structures. So if you had something like a lists or lists as the values of map uh, of maps, um, so the map is you know keys to, to to lists. You can't just say, okay, I want to use this map on all the values in this map. You would need to you know take your map and iterate over it to get your keys and values and then you can transform your values using the map function and then you have to put the new keys and values back into a new map and so these nested transformations you want to do require you not only to figure out okay how do I even get to the sub values for which I can do my nested transformation but then how do I reconstruct back to the original data structure I was transforming Um, and this is something just I had to do all the time just over and over and over you know the my entire career writing Clojure, and I've been writing Clojure now for a very long time. I was writing it for more than a year before, probably more than a year and a half before I wrote Storm. So it's just a very, very common thing you run into in Clojure. Just you have something that's more complicated than just a simple map or list, um, and you want to be able to um, manipulate them uh, concisely and uh, with high performance. 
And I guess one way, and there's like this saying in the Clojure community that like better, uh, better 100 functions each on 10 data structures than uh, 10 functions each on 100 data structures. Uh, well, with Spectre, I would, I would go beyond that and say, well, better than any of that is to have um, uh, a, uh, some, uh, or let's say, 100 generic navigators each on 10 data structures than to have 100 functions each on 10 data structures. Because with Navigator, which is like the core idea behind Spectre, they can compose as much as you want so that you can manipulate data structures of arbitrary complexity um, without any issue. So now a navigator is, is uh, the equivalent of like an XPath navigator or probably more familiar to a lot of people, a CSS selector, right? It's this idea of subset of the data in, in, a, in a sort of path specification kind of way. Is that accurate? Correct. And it could be anything from let me navigate to this key in this map. It could also be something like let me, let me navigate to every element of the sequence. Um, but it could also be something like let me navigate to this subsequence of the sequence, where there's not really like, it's not really a nested data structure, but you're still able to navigate to a portion of um, some data structure. Yeah, and so this is this is super useful. I mean, I think the, the two pieces of, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe you have to comment on whether you think there are two pieces. I, I look at Spectre and I see a, a couple pieces. I see that I could use it for, um, for navigation, for query, if you will, like go mm -hmm. find you know, there's a hundred nodes in this notional tree, arbitrarily deep, and I want to find a, a certain 20 of them, and I can do that. And then there's also kind of the um, update part of it, where you can say, okay, you know, given some subset of nodes, here's a function that makes them into new nodes and returns me the transformed um, uh, value. Mm -hmm. uh, so is that is that fair? Like, does it, do you think it splits along those lines, or? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, um, yeah, so there's, yeah, those are the, those are like the two use cases for Spectre. One is just, uh, and, and, and in both cases, it's it's all about navigation. So in the querying case, you just navigate to the values that you just want back just on their own. And in the update case, um, you navigate to the values you want to update, but what you get back is the original data structure, but with everything you navigated to change according to your update function. Mm -hmm. Um, I forget where I was going with that question. Yeah. yeah anyway, so we, we've definitely found it. We've definitely found it useful for sure. Oh, I remember what it was. So, so, um, one of the things that I think is interesting and, um, again, a choice that is maybe slightly unusual, um, but that I agree with is that there's not really a DSL here, right? Like it's not, Spectre is not you know, a data specification where you say, well, if you have a vector and it has a keyword as the first element and a thing as the second element, it's really more code oriented. And I've been kind of thinking a lot about over the last few years, actually based on something that um, Alan Dipert said to me on this show quite a while ago mm -hmm. now about how, you know, there's this, we've said time again, time and time again in the closure community, we, you know, data function macro, mm -hmm. you know, in order of um, decreasing preference, but I think that's actually not quite right. Uh, we talked about this with Matthew Flat as well, how, well, first of all, the racket people would probably invert that, <laughs> right? Because their, their mm -hmm. macro system is, is, is central for them. Mm -hmm. but, but I think, you know, again, I'm a bit of a noob with the, the Spectre um, API, but it, it is really a, f a function API. And I think that that is a slightly unusual choice. I think a lot of us reach for would reach for how do I make like an XPath equivalent where it's a bunch of data and it's going to tell me how to get to um, uh, 
Yeah, like you have like you have like yeah, like a string or something with yeah. slashes divided or, or or I mean that that's I mean well, I mean maybe not everyone would immediately find that bad design, but maybe it'd just be something like a vector where different symbols represent, you know, like a star means go to everything and, and things like right, that. Right, right, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so you didn't do that. Yeah. Um, it, now, was that something that you really thought about at all, or was it just obvious to you that that wasn't the right way, or what? What was the thinking that went into that aspect where you're like, no, functions is the right way to go here? Yeah. So I realized. Um, well, uh, well, actually, the original spec. Well, before, well before I open sourced it, um, it was like 50 lines of code, and it was basically something like that, where you just like have symbols that represent how you want to navigate through. And um, it was fine. It, it worked for me for a little bit. And then, I mean, the way, basically the way I approach designing software and the more experience I've gotten and the better I've gotten at programming, the more this has been drilled into me, is I think, um, I always think in terms of what are my use cases, what are the things, what are the like, specific problems I need to be able to solve with the tools and abstractions that I build. Um, and at first, my my you know, needs for Spectre were pretty straightforward. It was things like, you know, navigate into uh, an associative data structure or navigate to every element of a sequence. And so my original design of having kind of basically what we described of just a vector of symbols that represent specific navigations worked totally, totally fine. It was, it was the fastest thing for me to implement. But then as I kept working on things and, and I realized I needed more, more and more and more out of Spectre, like more and more ways to navigate. Um, and I was also doing a bunch of stuff with graphs, and graphs have all, all sorts of ways that you can uh, navigate them and manipulate them. Um, it didn't really make sense to just keep on making these special symbols uh, to represent what kind of navigation you want. Like It became very clear to me that this needs to be a completely extensible API. And so then I started thinking about, okay, well, how do I abstract the concept of a navigator? So something that can step into some sort of substructure and can also compose with other navigators to make more sophisticated navigators. Um, and that was, I had to give that some thought, but that, that was like the key for me to turn Spectre into what it is now as this fundamental generic abstraction. Uh, and it turned out to be a fairly simple interface, like what, the, what, what, an, what a navigator looks like. It actually uses um, continuation passing style in the uh, interface. And it was it was perfect. Like it, it's very clear when you when you look at the interface and you understand it that okay, any navigation I'd ever want to do can be captured via that interface. And then from there, it's just about okay, I have specific use cases and I can just implement them in terms of that 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 interface. Right. And so and so this leads to I mean, so I think it's interesting to think about what the trade offs are, right? I mean, you started out with this data. Um, I mean, the, you know, the, the straightforward, the obvious representation, the one I've probably written a couple times, the, you know, mm-hmm. vectors of symbols, as you say. Mm-hmm. And then the obvious trade off is you quickly get to a point where, well, because what's the problem with data, right? The problem with data is, is that you have to have an interpreter, right? So there's got to be code somewhere that does something with it. Yeah. And if you have to always modify that thing, then you kind of get to a point where it's like, well, why if I, what I'm doing is expressing behavior, mm-hmm. c- code is a pretty good way to do that. Um, That's right. Right. I mean, w- w- when you want extensible behavior, that is exactly what protocols are for. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so, but the the drawback is that once you move away from data, you don't necessarily have 
as rich a way to manipulate the expression, the um, the artifacts that you're working with, right? Like, so a specter path is not something that's as easily, maybe, actually this is the, the question really is, is that a limitation, the fact that um, because a specter path isn't data, except in as much as code is data, right? Because it, it is to us in a lisp. Um, right. Is, well, that, so yeah, so that's kind of, well, that's an interesting thing about specter. So an individual navigator is a... Um, is an instance of this protocol, uh, essentially. Um, and then a path um, is just a sequence of these navigators. And so with Spectre's API, if you want to pass a path to you know, the transform function or the select function to do whatever manipulation you want, you can just pass it to the vector. Um, and I, have done, I, ha I do do stuff um, where I do need to dynamically make those paths, and um, then I'm just manipulating vectors. And, Okay, it's like I need to do this, so let me concatenate that path with this other path over here to make my overall path, which I can then use dynamically at runtime. So in that respect, it, it still is sort of like data mm. uh, if, if you want to, if you want to use it that way. Right, 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 and, right. But, but you, you did say like a really important, important point before, though, where when you do have that if, if you know, back when Spectre was this you know, data-oriented interface. It, it would be an interpreter. So it would have to read the sequence and interpret what the symbols meant in terms of what to do. And uh, it turns out that that interpretation process um, actually adds a ton of overhead to your transformation. So one other nice thing about moving to this protocol-oriented design is I was able to add this feature to Spectre called pre-compilation, where you could just completely strip any need to interpret the path when you're manipulating your data um, it enables stuff to go much, much faster. And in fact, um, Spectre, when you use pre-compilation, the performance rivals hand-optimized code. Hmm. Yeah, and, and actually the reason we chose it is, um, is A, that we did have a reasonable need for performance, but also that um, we, we didn't want to write hand-optimized code. Uh, the hand-optimized code that we need to write, where, so I'm working on a project where you know, we, have, uh, we have a fairly deep data structure. It represents... Um, it, it, well, I, I don't want to go into it too much, but basically we have a typical closure, super nested uh, data structure where it's a, a, a sequence of maps of maps of sequences of maps of sequences of maps, you know, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. And writing, and we do transformations on it, actually. We actually go in and replace pieces of it way down in the guts mm -hmm. with, um, with other things. In fact, what we're replacing values with is assertions about those values. So we're taking data and we're saying mm -hmm. this piece was valid this piece was not valid, this piece was not valid for this reason. And so we're actually doing the transformations and, and the, the hand-optimized um, expressions were nasty. I mean, really nasty, oh, yeah. right? It really. Just, it, it's just a ton of, like, nested function calls. Uh, yeah, uh, and, and it's non-uniform, right? Yeah. Like, you have, you have, you're mixing map, reduce, and filter, and map, cat, and, like, all these things that, you know, and, of course, uh, you know, the arguments those things are functions, and the functions themselves may call call map, and so they didn't really. You, you couldn't you couldn't uh, thread macro your way out of into readability. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah that that is something I suffered with a lot before I was back to. Yeah, yeah. So it's been working out well for us. Um, we we just really just got started with it in the last couple of weeks, so we're gonna have to. We're we're still putting it through its paces, but so far so good. Yeah, there's a lot. I haven't really had that much time to write documentation for it, but there is a lot of stuff in that API. Um, like half the time when someone uh, 
open issue on GitHub about wanting some functionality, it's, it's already in there. Because I, I use it so heavily that I've, I've just run into, I've really explored that problem domain. So there's a lot of cool stuff there. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, but I think the, an important thing is that there can be, so you have what you're saying is, and I believe this to be correct, is you have a rich API. But I think the important thing is that it's not rich in the sense of having a lot of concepts in it, right? Like there's yeah. a small number of, like na- the navigator concept is pretty universal, Mm-hmm. Um, and once you understand that, then it's just a matter of finding the particular flavor that you want, right? The particular implementation. And I think that's a big deal because it's a lot harder if you've got a library that has a hundred concepts in it. That's e- right. Each of which has one or two functions versus one or two concepts. And then there's, you know, a hundred functions that, that are basically just that concept that becomes way easier to, um, to discover, to navigate, to internalize and to, and to leverage. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's one of the reasons why I'm just so happy with that project because, I mean, it's it's just really simple at its core. Yeah, yeah. But 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 just incredibly useful. Yeah, we certainly have found it. So, so what's uptake been like? Have you been hearing from a lot of people using it, or? Oh man, well, people definitely seem to be using it. Uh, one of the one of the frustrating things about open source, and this is this has always been the case, um, including on on Storm and then and then the Casca log before that, is that. Um, you never really know when people are using your projects. Uh, people don't uh, right. don't don't really tell you. Uh, I remember with Storm, um, I remember I got an email one day just out of the blue from someone at Alibaba, saying that just telling me, "Oh, hey, uh, just wanted to tell, just want to let you know that Storm is like a core part of our infrastructure. We've been using it heavily for a year and a half." <laughs> and I was like, "Wow, that's incredible!" You know, you're like one of the biggest companies in the world. That's a really big deal for this project. And so, you know, Spectre obviously being a much smaller product than Storm, you know, I just, I, I, I don't know. I could, actually could not tell you how many people are using it. Yeah. Yeah, we have the same, I mean, you know, one of the things we care about here at Cognitect is how many people are using Clojure. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the answer is that we don't, we don't know. I mean, we hear, I think, I think we're better positioned to hear about it than a lot of people. And the state of Clojure survey is going on right now. And, of course, mm-hmm. uh, this will come out after that, so we'll have announced the results, and people will get to see all that. And you know, we're pretty pretty public about, uh, very public about um, all that. But but of course, you know, that's not the whole story. And uh, you know, we've said things before, like um, n of the top m, I shouldn't say top n of the Fortune m companies are using it, where n and m are numbers that are pretty close together, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like a lot a lot of people are using it, but you'd never necessarily know that by just poking your head up and looking around. So yeah, exactly. We've had the same experience where it's like, how do you know when somebody is using your technology, especially if especially if they're using it successfully, right? Because they didn't have to ask you any questions or, that's or right. run into yeah. any problems. So it's yeah. a good sign. Yeah, the better yeah, that's it's kind of a paradox. The better your software, the less likely you'll you'll know because they won't they won't come to you with issues. Yeah, especially if you're not charging anything for it, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I should charge for it. Maybe you should. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean, uh, I was ask you. I, you mentioned Cascalog too, and I'd completely forgotten that was you as well, which is another cool project. But um, yeah, yeah. So, what do you have? Uh, do you have anything in mind for Spectre, or you're like, hey, man, this thing works and it's done. I love it when I get software that I'm like, cause I have a library that little little one called Causatum, and every once in a while, someone will ask me, what are you going to do with it? I'm like, nothing. It's done. <laughs> you know, I have things that I could yeah. do, but there's nothing I have to do. So I don't know whether you're in that place with Spectre or whether you have other thoughts about where you want to take it. I mean, Spectre is really well-developed at this point. There are certainly um, 
uh, let's see, like I actually just yesterday um, released a new version of it. I added this thing called protocol paths where you can, you can have your path dynamically change based on the type of whatever you're currently navigated to. Hmm. So just, just, I just happened to, you know, last week I was like, oh, wow, I, this, this would really help clean up this code I have right here. Let me implement that in, in Inspector. Well, actually, it was a few weeks ago that I first ran into it. And so like, there's like, very like, minor things that could be improved, and I have those listed on the, uh, the GitHub issues. But certainly for, like, for most people, like, Spectre will likely totally satisfy your needs for a very long time, until, until you, maybe you start doing very, very sophisticated stuff. Um, I think the one area in which, um, I'm not going to say like, Spectre can be improved, but more in which, because um, um, this would most likely be done as a separate library, but would be just kind of expanding that collection of navigators that are just out there for you to just download and use as a library. So like a good example of this, like a lot of the stuff that I do in, in my own work is a lot of uh, stuff with graphs. Um, so I have, I've extended that Spectre protocol just internally in my own stuff for doing all sorts of really cool graph manipulations. Like, like, like it's almost, it's, a, it's actually like, it's just like crazy just like how sophisticated these graph transformations can be in, in so few lines of code. But uh, it's a little bit tied in with my own stuff, so I haven't open sourced it yet. Um, but that is certainly um, a way to, I guess, improve the Spectre ecosystem would be to have like a Spectre graph library or, or various libraries um, specific to particular data structures to just have a bunch of navigators that, that you can use and then compose with all the other navigators that are available. I'm actually kind of curious. This, you've mentioned graphs. I'm because th the query languages that I've used that are that I think of as, as most similar to Spectre are things like CSS selectors, XPath navigation, mm -hmm. uh, and those are um, inherently hierarchical. Whereas you're talking about graphs, and so graphs can have things like cycles. Yeah. Um, uh, how does that map to Spectre? Well, uh, I can get into like I'll get into like one of the specific navigators for it. Um, so I have, let's say you have like a graph, whatever, you have a a, a, some data structure that represents a graph. Um, so one of the things, something I can do in Spectre is I have a navigator to navigate you to a subgraph of a graph. Um, and there's a variety of ways to choose the subgraph. I could say all nodes reachable within two hops from this particular node. Or I can just say, just give me the subgraph, which is literally just this list of nodes. And so then you navigate to the subgraph. And the subgraph that you have obviously contains the nodes that you chose, and then it only contains the edges which are completely internal to the subgraph. So edges that are between two nodes that are both in the subgraph. But of course, that subgraph exists within this, uh, you know, this parent graph, and there are edges from the subgraph to other nodes in the parent graph. Um, so I can do things like, okay, let me navigate to this subgraph, and then I'm going to have a function which processes it, and then returns a brand new subgraph that's it could have a completely different shape and structure from the original subgraph. And then Spectre, you know, it'll, when, it, when it actually transforms that subgraph, in the parent graph, all those nodes will, the original nodes will disappear, and they will be replaced with the subgraph. And then there's this question of, what about all those edges that used to connect to the original subgraph? Mm -hmm. And so in the, the way the library works is that you can annotate the nodes of the new subgraph with metadata and say, okay, this node should absorb whatever edges to the parent graph for you know, nodes A, B, C, and D in the original subgraph. Or this node should just absorb all the incoming edges um, that have not been absorbed by other nodes yet. 
So by annotating with metadata, you can specify how should it be reconnected into the original parent graph. Hmm. And this stuff is all, and again, these navigators are all composable. So, you know, I could navigate to a subgraph of a subgraph of a subgraph, and it'll all just naturally, you know, when the reconstruction happens, it'll just all just naturally work just because of the nature of the composability of, of, of navigators. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like, it's kind of like mind-boggling, just like how generic that is. But like when I've applied that, this in my own work, it's just like, like, wow, like that is the power of composable abstractions. It's just, just everything just works beautifully. Yeah, well, when you think about it, it's, it's um, like all good ideas. It's kind of obvious, right? Because when we talk about these things to each other, we say, well, what I want to do is I want to get all of the odd-numbered uh, nodes in this, in this vector Mm-hmm. And then those things are uh, pointers into a graph. And so then take the graph and pull it out and replace anything that has an associated value of three with, you know, two copies of itself. When you say it that way, right, like out loud, mm-hmm. you, you know, we don't, we don't really get lost, like expressing this idea of, you know, following a path even down multiple branches, mm-hmm. right, and doing things like, you know, referring back the way that you talked about with metadata to previous mm-hmm. values, so it's kind of funny, but I mean, what you've basically done, is to, you know, from my noob standpoint, is just make it easier for us to write that down in code rather than in English, because we already have like pretty clear ways, or at least I, I find it a, an easier thing to think about what I'm trying to do. It just becomes really, really messy to write down, even even in Closure, if you stick to the core libraries. Yeah, that's right, and it's um, yeah with Spectre these. Basically, the code for these transformations looks a lot like how you think about them, mm-hmm. uh, which is, uh, you know, that's always a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's always a good thing as long as the code you write, uh, you know, the, 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 there's no, like, you know, crazy trade-offs you're making, like, oh, yeah, it looks like how I think of it, but it's 100 times slower. <laughs> right. Um, right. But with Spectre, you actually get the same performance. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there, there's there's one more thing that I have to talk to you today about, but I don't want to leave. Uh, we can come back to it, but I don't want to leave Spectre as long as we're talking about. It. Is there is there anything else that uh, you think is worth mentioning about about Spectre before I uh, before I ask you about something completely non code related? You can probably guess what it was. <laughs> is oh uh, no, I think I think we covered Spectre yeah. pretty good. I mean, I think I would just encourage anyone listening if you want to learn more about it. I wrote a blog post about it. It was right after Strange Loop, so I guess that was a few months ago. Uh, but the blog post. It, it you know it uses a specific example to really ground all these concepts and um, I think that's that's the best way to to get started with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found it really easy to get going based on the documentation and based on your presentation um, mm-hmm. presentations. I should say the strange loop one was one of them, but uh, anyway, so yeah, I wouldn't say the same thing. Okay, well the mm-hmm. <laughs> the thing I wanted to talk to you about on the show um, because we had such a great conversation about it uh, in the in the at Union Station at Strange Loop is uh, so in addition to you you know. Uh, writing some truly impressive uh, closure libraries and and being a successful entrepreneur and a pianist, you're also a a, a private pilot. Uh, that's right, I am a private pilot. Uh, so uh, you know, I've I uh, I'm interested in aviation. I am not myself a pilot of actual aircraft. I I fly pretend ones in in games, but uh, but it, we had a really fun conversation, and I just thought it was such an interesting thing. Um, you know, that so few people do. Although I think a lot of people are interested. That I I was wondering if you could. Uh, Talk about how you got into it, what motivated you, how long you've been doing it, and uh, just, I don't know, like, if, if you have a favorite thing about flying, what it is, because I'm interested in the topic. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love, I absolutely love flying. Um, 
And the way, so the way I got into it is I do this thing, I've been doing it for a few years now, um, where every year I, I do something new. Um, and, 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 and what I do, it's something that should challenge me and require significant effort to do. And so um, last year um, uh, I had a friend who uh, had just started flight training and he was telling me about it. And then I realized that like, that is perfect for me. That is something I greatly enjoy. Because um, flying is this, or learning to fly is this, this great combination of uh, a science and technology. Um, I mean, to, to become a pilot, you have to learn a ton about you know, physics, so things like aerodynamics. Um, and you have to learn, learn a lot about engineering. You learn a lot about the, the systems of the plane. Uh, um, how does the engine work? How, does, how do the fuel and the air mix? Um, you know, how does the carburetor work? How does fuel injection work? All this stuff. And it's things that you really do need to know uh, to safely fly a plane. Um, and then it's just, um, you know, obviously there's, it's a, th- a thrilling thing to do. Uh, it, it feels very adventurous when you're doing it. Uh, so for those reasons, it was perfect for me. And that's why, um, uh, that's why I got into it. Um, and one, things, one of the things I love about flying, actually, um, is, um, you know, when I'm doing programming and doing my work, it's, it's very intense, um, and, and it, you know, it can be hard to, to get your brain away from that. You know, one of the ways I do that I mentioned is, you know, playing piano and, and things like that. Uh, but one of the nice things about flying a plane is that while you're flying, there is no possible way <laughs> of you thinking about programming because you're, you're just, you know, you're thinking about staying safe in the air and, and seeing and avoiding traffic and, you know, just flying the plane. Um, so that's, that is something I really enjoy about it. Uh, I forget what your other questions were. About. Uh, no, that's cool. That's great, actually. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm as, as you know from our conversation, this is something I'm very interested in. But I think it's a very yeah. interesting thing about you. Uh, well, well, you, st- you still have an open invitation to uh, come up to New York, and I'll take you, take you flying. Uh, that'd be fantastic. I would love that. Uh, I will, I will definitely do that one of these days. Um, uh, so I appreciate that, um, especially you committing it to it here in front of you know uh, a few thousand of your closest friends, right? Um, oh yeah, that's Happy cool. To do it. Oh, that's I, I mean, I, I love taking people for their first flights in small planes because um, it's it's you know it's very different than flying in a commercial airliner. Um, the plane is is much more responsive to the atmosphere, and you can just do a lot of cool things that uh, like stalls and steep turns and things that that, you, that you've never experienced before in a in a big plane. Sure, and you're flying uh, in the New York area where there's a lot of air traffic. Yeah, I've done a lot more. I've done most of my flying in in California, but I have done some flying in New York. Um, my most memorable flight was I flew uh, down the Hudson River at fifteen hundred feet, which was um, it was definitely uh, one of the most thrilling experiences of my life, and also one of the most terrifying because uh, that is just that airspace is crazy. There are helicopters and aircraft all over the place. Um, but it was, it was really quite an experience. <laughs> That's very cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I know you and I are both a bit aviation nuts. Maybe we should, uh, maybe we should not drag everyone else into it too much longer. Although I found your, I think other people will as well find, find your experience fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. well, we are starting to wind up here though. Uh, I, I do always make sure that we give our guests time to talk about anything else that is on their mind they would like to share with me or with the rest of our listeners. Um, and we have plenty of time to do that. Is there is there anything else on your mind, or or and if it's a longer thing and you want to save it for another day, I would love to have you back on. I mean, obviously, we look at your resume and it's pretty clear that um, 
you do cool things on a regular basis, and I have no doubt that uh, there will be more for us to talk about at a future date. But uh, but today, is there anything else you'd like to spend time on? Uh, no, I think I think we covered we covered a lot of stuff. So I think I mean I hope that was uh, interesting to all the listeners. I'm sure it was actually. It definitely was interesting to me. Um, well, mm-hmm. th- this is great. So this is uh, a good conversation, and and we have our one uh, question at the end. I still have one more bit of uh, of uh, I don't know information or illumination I'd like to to get from you, uh, mm-hmm. and that's our our final question, which is uh, a bit of advice. We always ask our guests to share a bit of advice with our listeners, whether that's advice they've received or advice they like to give or just anything really. Um, what would you like to share with us in terms of advice? Well, I did mention, I mentioned it a little bit already, but I do this thing where I do one new thing every year, something to challenge me that will require a lot of effort. Um, and I, that has been one of the best things, uh, just that, that, uh, that, I guess, yearly tradition uh, for me has definitely been one of the best things um, I've done. Um, I find that, um, well, there's, there, there, there's kind of multiple aspects to it. Uh, first of all, um, I do think it's really important to always challenge yourself because um, it's through challenging yourself and and you know putting yourself into situations that you're not comfortable with. That's how you grow and that's how you improve as a person. Um, and it's also um, it also humbles you. Um, so like when I was flying, uh, you know, I was doing really well. I was learning really fast, and then when it came to the time to learn how to land, I was just stuck for a whole month. I just could not land the damn plane. Um, and you know, as someone where I've been very, very successful in, uh, you know, in my career with companies and, and building these open source projects, like it's good to have a, a humbling experience like that, where you're trying to do something and you just have no idea why you can't get it. Um, and then another aspect of it is that the more like you diversify yourself in terms of the things you do and the kind of knowledge you have, there's an amazing. Uh, like bleeding effect between knowledge. So like there are things I learned um, from learning how to fly a plane um, which has bled over to my understanding of software engineering. Um, uh, and that's been true of everything I've, everything I've done. Like when I've, I remember I was on this like big uh, history bent at one point uh, with uh, colonial American history and I was reading biographies of of all the founding fathers and things and things like that, and like you learn things by exploring these subjects, which are so different from your career, um, which surprisingly um, is useful. Um, so I, I learned some things about, you know, like how George Washington managed his cabinet, which I think is very relevant and very useful to um, to just dealing with people in generally in general, and also with managing a software team. Um, so there's just so much to gain by forcing yourself to explore new things and, and challenge yourself. Um, that would be, that would be my one, one piece of advice. Wow. That's awesome. I hope you don't mind. That's usually our final thing, but I, I got to ask you about some of the other things that you did on a, uh, you know, your yearly, uh, I don't know if you said at the beginning of the year, but, and you are like, if, if so, maybe it's coming time for you to pick another one, but I, I just love to hear just a few of the we don't have to go into them too much, but uh, what, what, what does the list look like? Obviously, fly a plane is one of them, but what what other crazy things have you made yourself do? Uh, let's see. Two years ago or three years ago, I uh, forced myself to uh, do stand-up comedy. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was that is challenging. Um, yeah, 
uh, and and you know, I, I forced myself not just to do it, but to get decent at it. So, um, and you know, I got you know, I got. I mean, I'm not like I'm no I'm no Louis C.K. or anything like that, but uh, you know, I was able to go on stage to a bunch of strangers and and you know, get a lot of good laughs. Wow. Um, so that was uh, that was quite that was quite the experience. Uh, that that I, I I don't know if I'd recommend that to everyone because <laughs> stand up is like brutal. Yeah, I've heard. Uh, I've heard. Yeah, it's it's. Yeah, I mean, yeah. On some level, like having that experience of just bombing on stage for five minutes straight, it would be a good experience for a lot of people to have. Um, but uh, yeah, you, you, you got to develop thick skin to be a stand-up comedian, no matter no matter how good you are. Yeah. Um, but that's that's kind of part of that's part of the ways that that's that's one of the ways in which it helps you grow. Um, my thing that I'm going to do next year is I'm planning to um, you know. I, Spent all my life doing software and, and working with abstract ideas. And so I thought it'd be fun to enter the real world of making things. And mm. so next year I'm going to uh, learn how to do woodworking. Oh, great. Yeah. And I do expect, again, there to be a lot of, like, of that bleed over effect of learning things about building real things, which, which then helped me understand software or other things even more. Well, uh, I have to, um, this, gives, this is great. I'm glad you mentioned that because it gives me a chance to reciprocate. I'm no expert, but I, I have some experience with woodworking. It sounds like maybe you're just getting started. And uh, my friend Timmy Wald, uh, another Cognitech, is also a great woodworker. And if you ever have any questions or just want to talk about it sometime, please hit me up. I, it's, it's, no, it's no ride in a plane, but I'd be happy to offer what little perspective I have. So uh, you give me a shout. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, I've, I've just started uh, looking into it and planning for it. But uh, yeah, that'd be great. Cool. Maybe we'll convince you to use uh, hand tools. That's That's been our thing. So anyway, but... All right. Well, that is amazing. I'm so glad. I mean, I know it kind of messed up our usual order, but you know what? I don't care because um, stand-up comedy, woodworking, that's fantastic. I suspect we could probably just have you on every year and um, and say, hey, man, how was your new project? And, and get some great stories from you. Um, and then maybe, just as a bonus, talk about whatever awesome software you've created. So I'm really glad we had you on today. So. Anyway, hey, sounds, sounds good to me. Oh well, let's let's do it then. It'd be fun. Um, so that's it's been great having you on. I super appreciate you taking the time. Obviously, you're a very busy person, and uh, but I do appreciate you coming on. I was absolutely fascinated by the conversation. I knew uh, after the conversation we had at Strange Loop, you make a great guest, and I did not get disappointed in that. So uh, thanks a ton for coming on the show. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Likewise, uh, we're glad you could make it. But we do have to wrap up there. We will we will call it a day. This has been the Cognicast. have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art and show notes at our home on the web, Cognitech.com slash podcast. You can contact us by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at Cognitech.com. Our guest today was Nathan Mars on Twitter at Nathan Mars, N-A-T-H-A-N-M-A-R-Z. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.